Good morning to everyone who's joining us online. We're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. My name is Mike. I'll be sharing God's word with you, and we will return once again to Romans chapter 9. So if you would, uh, please stand as we hear from the Lord. We do have the verses up on the screen and Bibles throughout the room. Feel free to grab one of those. As a custom, we're going to read here from the ESV, and I'm going to read Romans 9, the first 24 verses in totality. Word of God says the following. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. 
Let's pray. Lord God above, you know all things. You know each of us intimately. You know our desires, our emotions, and every one of our concerns. And you care for each of those with a love that is deeper than anything we could ever imagine. Therefore, Lord, you know my heart right now, and you know my concerns. I love you, I love your word, and I love the people here at Living Water and those who are watching online. And I know that this passage of Scripture is probably the most challenging one I've ever had to deal with. Therefore, I humbly ask that your spirit be present amongst us as he has been thus far in our service. May he guide my words, guide my tone, guide my expressions, guide my body language, guide my heart to help us all hear whatever it is that you want to communicate. Have your way with us. Give us humble hearts, open minds, and sensitive spirits. I ask all of these things in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Back in the uh, 16th century, there was an event that took place, brought about a ton of controversy. In fact, it shook the church because this event challenged many of the long-held traditional beliefs of the church at that time. So this event was initially very unpopular. It presented opposition in, in, in the beliefs that people held at the time, and they held them for a long time, came under assault. Now, when I say the 16th century, and I talk about the, the church being rocked by an event that took place at that time, you might think I'm talking about the Protestant Reformation. That's not the event to which I'm referring, although that obviously did play a huge role in the life of church history when the Protestant Reformation came about, because it did challenge many traditionally held beliefs at the time. But that's not what I have in mind. Not the Protestant Reformation, but rather the Copernican Revolution. If you remember perhaps from grade school uh, about the Polish astronomer, his name was Nicholas Copernicus. Right? Nicholas Copernicus, he made a discovery back then that, that shook really both the scientific establishment at the time and the religious community. What he did is he took us from a geocentric model of the universe to a heliocentric model. Now, those terms you may be unfamiliar with. I had to brush up on those. It's been a minute since I was in like fourth grade science class, which is probably when I learned that. Uh, so what, what do those terms mean? Well, what, what Copernicus did through his discovery, he revealed to us that it was not the sun that revolved around the earth, but rather the earth revolved around the sun. And that's what he revealed with his telescope that we had mistakenly thought that we were at the center of the universe. 
And that would make sense, too, that if you just simply walk outside without the use of any sort of, uh, you know, tool like a telescope or some of the equipment that is used by astronomers, and you just look up, you'd be like, okay, uh, I, I see the sun rising in the east and moves about the, the sky during the day and sets in the west. So it seems like we're stationary and the sun is revolving around us. But Copernicus came with truth that challenged that and demonstrated we had it wrong. But not everybody wanted to accept this. That's the controversy. This was met with a ton of opposition in, in both the scientific and religious communities at the time. They didn't want to embrace this truth because at the time they insisted on relying upon their own fallible senses and their own fallible reasoning. And then this rejection extended clear into the 17th century when the church condemned as a heretic a man named Galileo. My point in this introduction is to say, let us not be like those people. Let us follow truth wherever it leads. And the reality is, truth might lead us into some places we don't want to go. It may lead us into conclusions that we don't like. Or worse, leading us to a place where we might have to admit we got it wrong. So our purpose is today here, we don't need to peer into a telescope to find truth. We simply need to open up the Word of God and hear from Him. His Word is truth. And then when we, when we look at it and we rightly understand it, we then humbly submit to it. Whatever it might say, whether we like it or not, because it's from God and God cannot lie. So if you were here last weekend or watched online, uh, Pastor Mike took us through basically the same verses that I just read to you this morning. And he warned us that this section of Scripture is extremely controversial. I, I think, in my humble opinion, it is the most controversial chapter in all the Bible. And there's a lot of people I think that would agree with me. So that's why we have to spend some more time on it today. Not in the interest of controversy, but in the interest of getting to the truth. And I was here last weekend on Saturday night, right after the service. I went up to Pastor Mike. I told him I thought he did a masterful job working verse by verse through Romans chapter 9. And he hit all the key points, made it crystal clear, I thought, and uh, just did an excellent job, and we expect nothing less uh, from him. So he, he worked from the text in an, in an exegetical manner. He preached it exegetically, drawing truth from it and then applying it to our lives. Well, I want to use the same text, but not deal with it necessarily uh, exegetically, but rather objectionally. Now, that word does not exist, okay? I just made it up. When I typed it into uh, my document, Microsoft people, the good folks there, they didn't like that word. Got the red squiggly line. I'm like, all right. They offered a, an option. They, they came with objectionably. And I thought, well, maybe that's what I'm trying to say. So I did a little right click, looked at the synonyms of objectionably. It wasn't pretty. Offensive, unpleasant, disagreeable, distasteful, displeasing, unacceptable, off-putting, undesirable, obnoxious, nasty, disgusting, awful, and terrible. Okay? That's not what I'm going for today. Okay? Those aren't the targets I'm aiming for. 
So I don't want to teach this text objectionably. I want to go through it objectionally. Again, a word I just created. All right, I'm speaking things into existence here today. So what do I mean by objectionally? Well, Romans chapter 9 has no shortage of objectors. There's some that are embedded right in the text. Paul brings them up. He brings it to us, and these were uh, the ones that Pastor Mike dealt with last weekend. So we're not going to retread that ground. I would refer you to last weekend's sermon, because in many ways, that is a foundation for what we're kind of, I'm building upon that. So if you didn't hear that, you know, I'm going to try to recap uh, and summarize as best as I can, uh, but it's hard to do that, you know, for a 60-minute sermon. So I'm going to, I'm going to try my best to, to do that, but I would refer you to YouTube, our YouTube channel. You can see it there, or our, our Living Water website. Like I said, there's no shortage of objections. Therefore, what we want to do is we want to look at the same passage of Scripture because I'm operating under an assumption. My assumption here today is that if you were here last weekend, you heard the sermon, you left here saying, okay, okay, that was good. I now have a a better understanding of these things like divine sovereignty and election. Like, I have a better grasp on it, but what about? What about this? What about that? And so we're going to try to deal with as many whatabouts as we can. Let me summarize uh, what we learned last week. And to do that, I need to revisit two very important terms. I just did a copy and paste from uh, Pastor Mike's slide last week, which is uh, a definition here of divine sovereignty and election. The definitions go like this. Divine sovereignty, the exercise of God's all-encompassing rule and power over the entire universe especially as it relates to God's plan for the salvation of humanity. Election, God's choosing of individuals or people to bring about God's good purposes, especially as it relates to God's choosing of persons to inherit salvation through Jesus Christ. As we learned last week, you know, on, on their face, those are not typically objected to. People don't say, yeah, you know what? I don't think God is sovereign. Most people say, yeah, I agree, God is sovereign. But the rub is, how does he exercise that sovereignty? Right? God can do whatever he wants. The question becomes, what is it that he wants? And likewise, with election, okay, God chooses. God even chooses people who will be saved. And for many, they're okay with that because I think it's taught abundantly clear in Scripture. But when you get to the basis on which God chooses people, the controversy begins. So, what about the people God doesn't choose? There's a what about right there. And I think we did deal with this last weekend, the charge that God is unfair. He chooses some, yet he passes over others. He doesn't choose all. What about those he passes over? The theological term there is the reprobate. You might hear me refer to them as the reprobate, those whom God passes over. And in order to understand what's going on there, there's two concepts that are extremely important. And if you hear nothing else here today, this is what you really need to latch on to, okay? There's two things going on, mercy and justice, 
Okay, the elect, those whom God chooses, God extends to them mercy. Those whom God passes over, they get justice. No one in either party gets injustice because there's no injustice in God. Because we've all sinned. We all deserve condemnation. But God in his mercy, in his kindness, in his grace, he chooses to save some. But he doesn't save everybody. And that might be a what about that you have. What about that? Why doesn't God save everybody? Why doesn't he choose everybody for salvation? We will get to that, Lord willing, later. But if you are part of that group over here that God has extended mercy to, you need to understand it was nothing found within you that caused him to make that choice. It, was nothing, it had nothing to do with you. We learned it's not by birth. It's not by heritage. And what's remarkable to me in the Bible is that that's a lot, that's the Jewish thought is, well, I'm a Jew. Of course, I'm okay with God. The American version of that is, I was born into a Christian home. Mom and dad are Christians. That makes me Christian in some weird genetical kind of way. Is genetical a word or did I just create another one? Like, just because you grow up in a Christian home doesn't necessarily mean that your mom and dad might be Christians. That doesn't just fall to the descendants, okay? So the, the Bible is just remarkable how it's applicable back then and it's equally applicable today. But it's not our birth, our heritage. It's not our good works. It's not the fact that you're in church today. It's not the fact that you own a Bible and that you read it regularly. It has nothing to do with you. God's choosing of you and extending mercy to you. Paul states in verse 11, He's referencing Jacob and Esau here. He says in Romans 9, 11 through 16, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that brings us, I think, to our first what about. All right, so this is all of God. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He starts it and he sees it all the way through. All right. The text says it's not about the man who wills. Your Bible might say it's not about the man who runs, who exerts energy, but it's God and his mercy. So what about faith? Where does my faith come in? What about my free will? How do those fit in to this? Well, isn't Paul in the next chapter, isn't he going to say in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What about my confession? What about my belief? What about my faith? How does it all fit in? And some people will go about answering that question like this. They'll say, well, in eternity past, what God has done is he looked down the corridors of time and he saw that I would put my faith in Jesus, that I would have faith in him. God saw that and therefore he chose me. 
Based upon me choosing Jesus, he chose me and I became one of the elect. Question is, is that right? Is that what happened? To answer that, what we need to do is we need to look intently into God's word and focus in on a particular word. The word is foreknowledge. Foreknowledge. So the first what about is what about foreknowledge? What about faith? What about free will? You know, I love some alliteration. I always try to bring it in somewhere, okay? How do those concepts fit into Romans chapter 9? Well, if you know, the chapter divisions came along later. They're not part of the original uh, text of Scripture. So we need to go back to Romans chapter 8, but it's not like so removed from what we're dealing with today that it's irrelevant. So Romans 8, if you look at verses 29 and 30, something that's commonly known as the golden chain of redemption, here's what we read, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, there's our word, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So it seems to say there that our election is based upon the foreknowledge of God. And that's exactly right. It's what it says. The question is, what does foreknowledge mean? It may not mean what you think it means. The Greek word there is prognosko. You hear the word prognosis in there. That's where we get prognosis from. Gnosko is to know. So prognosko is to, to foreknow. And it's an active verb. It's not a noun. It's an active verb, prognosko. And every time that word is used when God is the subject, the direct object of that verb is always personal. So what that means is foreknowledge here isn't referring to God knowing what a person will do, knowing their actions, including putting faith in Jesus. No, it's, it's not. It's rather that God knows them personally. He knows them in an intimate way, not just head knowledge. And, and when, I, when I flesh this out, I think you'll begin to see the word know in Scripture is used in a very interesting way, all the way back to Genesis 4. Genesis 4.1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. That is a special kind of knowing. Agreed? Right? He didn't just cognitively say, all right, I'm aware of her. No, this kind of knowing conceived a child. That's some intimacy right there. Right? New Testament, 1 Corinthians 8. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Well, God knows everything. He knows everyone. What, that's not really stating anything. No, it is. Because what's meant there is there's an intimate, personal kind of knowing. Jesus, in, in what I would call the scariest chapter in the Bible or verse or section we're dealing with the most controversial. I think Matthew 7, when Jesus says to many on that day, judgment day, they come to him saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? What does he say to them? He says, depart from me. I never knew you. Well, did he know them? Of course he did. He knew them. He knew all about them. That's the problem. You know, he didn't know them in a saving way. There was no pers personal relationship. That's what's meant there by the word know. 
And I would argue we even use the term in this manner. We say all the time, does so-and-so know Jesus? Do they know the Lord? Well, we're not asking, have they ever heard the name Jesus before? We assume they have. We mean in a saving way, salvifically. Are they a Christian is what we're getting at. So the word foreknowledge is used here in Romans 8 for those he predestines. Romans 11, we're going to get the word again in reference to God's people, the Jews. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, even Christ himself is foreknown. The point is, the New Testament never once states that God looks ahead in time to see who would believe and who wouldn't. He does know that. The point is, Scripture doesn't make that point. We're reading that into the text. So even if that was the case, that God looks down the corridor of time to see who would believe and who wouldn't, presents a whole host of problems. It's a denial of God's omniscience. He knows everything instantly. He doesn't take in knowledge. That's, that's the first issue. The second issue is it turns election on its head. I mean, if that's the case, it renders God's election meaningless. Right? He, he's just not, the, he's not this great savior. He's a mere responder. Turns election into confirmation. And it guts the word election. Third, lastly, if God elects us according to our prior knowledge of our choice, then it's not all of his grace. Here's how I see it. Long before I was ever born, God said, I'm going to love Mike. He's a total knucklehead. He's selfish. He's sinful. He's rebellious. He's wretched. He deserves my wrath. But I'm going to extend my mercy to him having nothing to do with him. He doesn't deserve it. It's all of my grace. The point is, I did nothing to bring that about. That happened in spite of me. If it was something within me, I could boast, right? I mean, I could say, I had the good sense to put my faith in Jesus. Those who perished, they weren't as smart as me. Smart money's on Jesus. They should have known that. Oh, no, it's all of grace. It's all of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1. In love. This is all done in love. Don't miss that word. In love, he predestined us. He predestined me. He predestined you for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, in the final analysis, the question that we have to ask ourselves is we stand before the gates of heaven expecting to gain entrance. The question is, what separates us from those who go to hell? If it's anything but the grace of God, I think it's a denial of the point that Paul is laboring to make in Romans chapter 9. Election is about God's freedom to save according to his free will. Romans 9.11, though they were not yet born, they had not done either good or bad, nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. Notice the contrast. Not because of works, because of him who calls. Our works, his calling. That's the contrast there. And nothing in Jacob's life, including believing, 
influence God's decision because it was made before he was ever born. What about faith? Did Jacob believe? Did he express faith? We went through uh, Genesis. We saw it. He did. Absolutely. And this is where people will argue that faith isn't a work. And so it ought not be lumped into the word works here as Paul's using it in verse 11. I like what the systematic theologian Wayne Grudem says here. He says, this is unlikely given the context. Paul's not contrasting human faith and human works. He does do that elsewhere, not in this portion of Scripture. He's contrasting God's sovereignty with any human activity. And he points to God's sovereign will as the ultimate basis for his choice. The point is, is that faith isn't even mentioned in this entire section. It's not that faith isn't important. Of course it is. It's just not in view with this portion of Scripture. All right, what about my free will? What about my ability to choose? Do, do I get any say in this? I mean, I got it. God gave me a free will, didn't he? I mean, we, we, we talk about our free will all the time. What do we mean by free will? Well, I was looking at various definitions, and I, I kind of created my own. I cobbled together a number of different sources, and, and I think you'll agree this is a fair definition of what we mean when we say free will. It's the ability to act or make choices that are consistent with one's nature without any sort of constraint or coercion. Okay? But according to that definition right there, according to the Bible, only God has free will. See, only God can truly do whatever he wants, right? He, he, there's, he's, he has all power. There's no power greater than him that would coerce or constrain him. He's the only one that can truly claim a free will. On the flip side, what does the Bible say about the will of man? It's got something to say. A lot, in fact. John 6, Jesus' words himself, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is Jesus speaking about there? Inability. You can't come, he says, unless something happens. We'll get to that in a sec. But the objector still said, what about my free will? A couple chapters later in John, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slaves don't just decide to become free. They're slaves. They must be set free. And in Romans 8, earlier in Romans 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. The fact is, we do make choices, but the choices that we make are limited, and the choices that we make, we make them according to our fallen nature. Jeremiah speaks about the leopard. The leopard doesn't just decide to change his spots. And he says, neither can you do good when you're accustomed to doing evil. This is replete throughout Scripture. It describes fallen humanity. So when we start talking about our choices, we've already chosen. We've chosen to sin. We've chosen self. We've chosen rebellion. We've chosen rejection. We've chosen death. And we've chosen hell. 
Those are the only choices anyone ever makes apart from the grace of God. From birth, the wicked go astray. Here's how I see it. Like, let's imagine, let me get some water here. Let's imagine right here, this is the surface of the earth. Okay, just, just go with me, all right? Surface of the earth, and God creates. He creates humanity, and he places humanity on the earth. And because of Adam's sin, there's a ton of theology here with original sin. I, I can't get into it all, but basically the point is he creates human beings, and because we're just insane, we decide to run right off a cliff. That, that's what we do when we choose sin and self. And, and our, we're operating in a fallen world with our, our fallen nature. A corrupted world and a corrupted nature, it's a horrible combination. But God says, come to me, and I'll take care of that corrupt nature that you have, thanks to Adam. And I will give you spiritual life. But what do we do? We run. Everyone runs right off the cliff. And God, in his mercy and in his kindness, his saving arm, he reaches out and he saves some of them. Not arbitrarily, he has his reasons, he does it for his good purpose, but he saves some. He doesn't save all, and we must wrestle with that. But we run from God unless, unless what? John 6, no one can come to me, Jesus says, unless, praise the Lord for the word unless, right? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. See, all of humanity runs from God, but God pursues. He comes at, we, we sang that earlier. I love how when it all the songs, I'm like, I hear that in the lyric. I'm like, I'm going to say that later. I love it. It's like, tells me that God is doing something. I don't share Pastor Paul. I don't give him my notes. He doesn't know. He just looks at the same text I'm looking at. He sees pursuing. And the question you might have here today in the midst of all this heavy theology and perhaps, you know, controversial things that I'm saying that you don't necessarily agree with, the question you might have to ask is a very basic question right now. Am I one of the elect? Am I being drawn by the Father to the Son? Have I been drawn? What does that even look like? Let's, let's start with that question, right? I remember when I was being drawn I was uh, newly married before we had kids. My wife, Tara, and I, I love my wife. My wife is the best, okay? I, mean, I'm just, I don't know about you, but I got a good one, all right? Bible says, you know, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I got a good thing. I got a good thing. She, when we, uh, shortly after getting married, something was going on in my life, clearly, because around Christmas time or my birthday, I don't know, they both are close, she gave me a gift, and it was a book, can't remember if she said these words or she wrote these words in the book, but I remember the words verbatim. And her words to me were, Mike, I hope this helps you find what you're looking for. And I, the book was like spiritual warrior or something. It was totally heretical. Like, <laughs> she didn't know any better. I didn't know any better. We're just trying to figure out life. You know, I'm like, what the heck is this? It didn't make any sense to me. I didn't, didn't think I got very far in it. But God was drawing me clearly on the testimony of what she just said. What, what am I looking for? I didn't know at the time, but God was at work. And he was drawing us here to Harrisburg. He drew me to work for a, a secular company called Dempsey Uniform and Linen. And, and he brought a guy named Mark Hausnecht into my life. 
And Mark loves Jesus. And he just, it spilled over in our conversations. He, started, he was talking about Jesus all the time. And I was interested. I was like, tell me more. And Mark knew that I knew nothing of the Bible. And he said, Mike, you need to read the Gospel of John. And so in the midst of my getting drunk and getting high, I cracked open the Bible. I mean, it was, I mean, literally, like, I would put down the blunt and, and open the Bible. I mean, it was a strange time in my life. I'm just telling you. It's a reality. I'm just being transparent and honest. And I read the Gospel of John, and God began to draw me. I read about the light of the world. I read about the great I am. And I, the light of the world as I sat there in my darkness, right? I read about the good shepherd says, come follow me. And I was like, I'm lost. I don't know the way. He says, I am the way, Mike. And I read all about the I am. And, and this thing that I was looking for that I didn't know what it was, it, Jesus comes along and says, I am the bread of life. I will satisfy you. I'm the one you're looking for, Mike. I'm the resurrection and the life. You're going to die. I read that in Hebrews 9. It is appointed for a man to die once and then face judgment. And I knew that. I knew I was going to die, and I knew I deserved to be judged for my sin. I knew it. I deserve hell. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Even though a man dies, yet will he live. He says, he says, Mike, those who believe in me, they never die. Do you believe this? And I said, yes. The, the Father had successfully drawn me to the Son. And when I was confronted with the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, I made the decision to follow him. And yes, you, you heard me right. I said, I made the decision to follow him. Like the old hymn says, I have, I have decided to follow Jesus. You say, Mike, you just contradicted yourself. You got done talking about no one can come to Jesus. Now you came to Jesus, right? This is all God's choosing. You chose Jesus? Yes. Remember, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. I was being drawn. I wasn't looking for him. He was looking for me. The hound of heaven pursued me when I'm running off a cliff. This is all his doing. I chose him because he first chose me. I love him because he first loved me. And no, I did not use my free will to reach out and grab the life preserver that he tossed. I was stone cold dead at the bottom of the ocean. And in Christ, God dove down deep, breathed life into my bloated corpse, and I came alive. Y'all, this is the gospel. This is, this is what we celebrate here at, at Living Water Community Church. God does this. And it's not a shameful thing. It's a glorious thing. I hope you've experienced something like that. He takes out our heart of stone. He gives a heart of flesh. And then I can claim Romans 10.9. I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And I believed in my heart that God raised him from the dead. What did Jesus say? It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. That is the only kind of heart that can truly say Jesus is Lord. He took out my heart of stone, regenerated my heart such that I would come to Christ. It's his doing. 
no one performs their own heart surgery, okay? I don't care in the physical. Like, I think I'll go to my basement. I'll lay down on the couch, get a scalpel. I'll start cutting into my chest. You don't do that. You need someone to do that for you. And it's no different in the spiritual realm. It's no different. We need God to do this for, for us. Salvation, Jonah says, is of the Lord. Originates with him. It's God who foreknows. It's God who predestines. He calls. He justifies. He glorifies. All that golden chain is God's doing. It's, it's, he's the subject. The verb is he's doing it. He's the one who's active. The Bible says he appoints. The Bible says he grants faith. He grants repentance. He causes us to be born again, and he draws people to himself. And he raises us to newness of life when we were yet dead in our sins and trespasses. Guys, this is about giving God the glory that he rightly deserves. If you're here today and you're being drawn by God to come to Christ, I would say, come. It can happen anytime. It can happen while you're doing bong hits in your basement reading the Bible, okay? It can happen right here in this place. It can happen. I don't know what's going on. Spirit blows, right? John, John 3, I, I don't know what's going on. I'm just going to try to pour my heart out with you and just be honest. This is what he's done in my life. The spirit and the bride say, come. Revelation 22, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you have that desire? Do you have that desire? And if you did, like I did, praise him. They, he may have, he, he's already done that in your life. It's cause for praise, but maybe he hasn't. Maybe he's doing that now. Come to him. Because Jesus, in the midst of saying, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, we read that he says also this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Right there, John 6.37 is where divine election and human responsibility, they meet. So if you're here today and you're like, I'm too wicked, I'm too wretched. I'm too foul. God doesn't want anything to do with me. You're denying. Jesus says, you come to him like that, repentant, knowing what you deserve from him, he won't cast you out. That's what it says. See, as far as we're concerned, the invitation is wide open. We don't know the identity of the elect. I don't know who, who he's working on. That's why I preach to everybody. This fuels evangelism. He doesn't turn anyone away who wants to come. The question is, do you want to come? Has he done that work? Is he drawing you? He hasn't closed the door on anybody. You got a pulse, you got hope. And I cling to that. I cling to that. I got a lot of people I love that this has not happened in their life. They look at me strange. Like all your ranting and raving and hollering and all this stuff. Like, what? Like, dude, you're weird. People... <laughs> People think I'm weird, man. <laughs> Let me close with one last what about. And, th and this, is, this is very sobering. And this is something that we ought to really give some thought to. People will say, what about the fact that, okay, Mike, you know, this is a wonderful thing that happened in your life and that God is doing this. He initiates, he sees it all the way through to the end. Why doesn't he do it for everybody? 
Why, why doesn't he save everyone? Well, now, if you're someone who holds to um, universalism, that's what they believe. Uh, I don't think we have uh, many folks in here who are universalists. Uh, I think if you're a universalist, you basically have to throw the Bible away. Uh, it's really hard to square that view with what Jesus says and just Scripture throughout. The reality is some people do die and go to hell. It's a reality. And the charge goes like this. If God could save them and he chooses not to, that makes him both unmerciful and unloving. I read in a, a book, uh, it was co-authored by a guy named Dave Hunt and James White. It's called Debating Calvinism. And Dave Hunt said something. I couldn't believe it made it to print. I, I could, it was, there it was in black and white. He said, it is not loving for God to damn for eternity anyone he could save. He likened it, he goes on, he likes and likens that to a doctor who has a cure for a plague, but only gives it to a select group. Again, I think this is something that we need to wrestle with. Unless you're a universalist or you hold to something called open theism, meaning God you know, doesn't know the future, which again, I think is very hard to square with the, the Bible, that he's finding out things in time like we are. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we have a lot of universalists or open theists present here today. So we must contend with the fact that God passes over, that there is a group called the reprobate. See, even if you're someone who denies sovereign election, you know, you believe the Bible, you just don't agree with, with our interpretation here. You may be, you know, you, you look at this text and you say, yeah, you know, this is about nations and not individuals. There's a lot of controversy, like we said, and you're just, you're sitting in here, you know, and, and I, I'll bet you anything, people are in here that hold to that view and they're disagreeing with a lot of what I'm saying today and a lot of what Pastor Mike said last week. This is a good time to say thank you. Thank you for enduring this because we're saying things that maybe you disagree with, you have a different take. This is an in-house debate, guys. This is something that is not an essential that we ought to divide over. It's a point of distinction, not a point of division. And, and I'm glad that you sit here and you're listening to me and no one's shouting me down or, you know, throwing tomatoes at me or anything. I appreciate that. Okay, this is a nice shirt. I don't want to get tomatoes all over it. But, you know, the reality is um, this has caused a lot of problems in Christianity. People have left churches over this or worse, they've stayed and caused a ton of internal strife. This is in our open hand here at Living Water Community Church, and Pastor Mike would support me on this, and so would, I, I believe, the elder board. This is a doctrine that we hold in an open hand. Like, this is where we land, okay? We're not wishy-washy, uh, we don't know, this is, this is where we land, okay? But it's in the open hand. We can talk about it. We can discuss it. There are doctrines that are in the closed hand. You know, these are things that, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to change our mind on. We're not going to have a congregational meeting and vote on these. You know, they're over here. But even if they're over here, we don't, you know, take our fist and beat people over the head and beat them into submission. We just have the open hand and the closed hand. But the thing that we need to remember in all of this is our love for one another and our love. Don't, don't miss that. Our love for one another and our desire to preserve the unity and, and the great things that God is doing at Living Water Community Church, we ought not get off task of the mission that God has put us on here at Living Water Community Church and let this get in the way such that we divide, such that we said there's antagonism 
No. The, the love, the desire for unity ought to guide and govern this and any other conversation we have about any other controversial doctrine. Agreed? Right? Is that, is that fair? Okay. Amen. Thank you. So, even if you're somebody who denies sovereign election, you, you call yourself an Arminian or a provisionalist or a traditionalist, whatever the case may be, you still have to wrestle with the question that God creates some people that he knows will someday be in hell. And he creates them anyway. Right? You don't get God off the hook. Again, unless you're a universalist or an open theist. I think modalists even have to deal with this as well. The point is, when people are asked, you know, why doesn't God save everybody? If I asked you that, what would be your response? You might just shrug, say, you know, I don't know. Well, I don't want to sound so bold here, but I, I think we can know. Because I think Romans 9 gives us some answers. And again, this is sobering. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up. Why? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Let me quote that aforementioned James White and what he wrote. He comes more from the, uh, I was going to say he comes more from the Calvinist side. He's total Calvinism, okay? Uh, but James White said this, and I, and I just want to share, share it with you, and this is challenging. If you want to understand what the scriptures teach about this, you need to have the same priorities that God has. Because God said, the reason he raised Pharaoh up was to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So Dr. White asks, and he asks you, and he asks me, where in your priority list is the demonstration of God's power and the proclamation of his name throughout the whole earth? Is that a priority for you? It is for God. He goes on, he says, continuing the quote here, he says, those are not big priorities for the vast majority of people who call themselves Christians today. So it shouldn't surprise us when people don't like what Romans 9 has to say. But there's more. Five verses later in Romans 9, we read these words. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I would ask you a similar question. Do you think it's important for God to show his wrath and to make his power known? He does. He does. Are our priorities aligned with his? It's important to him. So we talk a lot about our desires and our will. Sure, I do. I do. But what about God? What about his desires? What about his will? See, we love the attributes of God that are, you know, he's love, he's merciful, he's gracious, he's kind. Amen. And he is all of those things. And we love that. But he's like, um, that's not all that I am. I have other attributes as well. And I desire to show them off. He has a, des a desire to display the full range of his attributes. And he says, I want to show my power, I want to show my wrath, and I want to show my justice. We may not want to hear that, but that's what he says. So we might reject that, but I would say let's not be like those in the 16th century who didn't want to hear the truth that came from the telescope 
of Copernicus. Many of us here today, we don't want to hear the truth that comes from the Word of God. So when we ask the question, why not everyone? I think we're asking the wrong question. Why me should be the question. We struggle with Esau I hated. How come we don't struggle with Jacob I love? Maybe we should. Wayne Grudem, again, I want to quote him. He kind of sums this up. And in this whole discussion, really, here, this whole debate, I think he kind of crystallizes it. So let, let me quote him here. He says, Both sides of the debate say there is something else that God deems more important than saving everyone. Both sides. Okay? Reformed theologians say that God deems his own glory more important than saving everyone. And this is challenging. And God's glory is also furthered by the fact that some aren't saved. The Arminian theologians also say that something, is, something else is more important to God than the salvation of all people, namely the preservation of man's free will. So in a reform system, God's highest value is his own glory. In an Arminian system, God's highest value is the free will of man. And I think both sides would probably agree with that for the most part. He says, these are two distinctly different conceptions of the nature of God, and it seems that the reform position has more explicit biblical support than the Arminian position does on this question. Something to think about. So what is this all about? I mean, this is, is this a seminary class today? What, what am I to take with me that I can apply right now? Here's what I would say. It might not just be the cold temperatures outside. Perhaps your walk with the Lord is a little cold. Maybe it's been a little icy, a little frigid. That's why I want to share a little bit of my story. Because if your story is anything like my story, he too has foreknown you, elected you, predestined you, called you, justified you, and glorified, past tense. He's done those things in your life. So my story is your story. This is what God does. He loves us when we're so very unlovable to him. He pursues us when we run from him. He gives life to the lifeless. He gives faith to the faithless. He shows kindness when we are so very unkind to him and to others. He extends mercy when all we deserve is wrath. He extends to us salvation and secures that salvation when all we've earned for ourselves is condemnation. So to answer the question I posed earlier, what is the one thing that separates the person who's going to heaven from the person who isn't? It's one word, five letters. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. It is all the grace of God. And we sing about it all the time. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. And we're going to sing that song in a minute. And I knew we were going to sing it. So I, I looked up the definition of the word wretch. Let me share it with you because it's very interesting. I, I did not know this. Wretch has two definitions uh, according to uh, Merriam-Webster. One is a miserable person, one who is profoundly unhappy or in great misfortune. Or two, a base despicable or vile person. So when you sing Amazing Grace that saved a wretch like me, which of those definitions do you subscribe to? Or is it somewhere in the middle? 
It's always good to know what we're singing, right? There's theology behind the words in the song, right? So are you simply a miserable person who's profoundly unhappy? Well, if that's the case, then Jesus might just be nothing more than a buddy to you to provide companionship and put a smile on your face. Or if you lean more towards the, and these are strong words, admittedly, base, despicable, vile person. Remember the woman who was at Jesus' feet with the, the alabaster flask of, an, of ointment? What did he say about her? He said, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. That's why I shared some of my story, because I got some big sins, and they require a big Savior. And among the list of my sins was my, yeah, I did bad stuff. You know what really bugs me about the former Mike, Mike in, in his lost condition? It's not so much the things I did, it's the things I didn't do. It was the apathy I had. I didn't even care. I wasn't pursuing God. I, if, if he had not chose me, I never would have chosen him. And so I praise him for that. What about you? Let's pray. Lord God, this has uh, been challenging. Your word often just challenges us to the core. We read it and we say, can this be true? What does this mean? What are you saying here? How are we to understand this? And, and we acknowledge there's different perspectives and viewpoints and people come to the text and they, have, they draw different conclusions. And, and, and that's okay. We're, we're, we're seeking truth. We're trying to find out your heart, to read your mind. And that is no small task. And so we, but we, but we want to be uh, standing on truth as, as best as we understand it, that, that we use these hermeneutical principles to rightly divide your word and then share it with others, okay? We don't want to be completely wishy-washy and say we just can't know anything or just throw the whole thing away because it's complex and I just don't want to think about it. No, I pray that we would dwell deeply and think deeply about these very important issues and even discuss them with people on the other side. But do that in a way that is loving and gracious and act like we actually care about the other person. Let us do that. And let us have iron sharpening iron so that we would all be built up and edified and become you know, better followers of you, being more informed, having studied and labored to understand that which you're trying to communicate to us. But it, the problem is not with you, it's with us. And just help us to understand your word and, 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 and communicate it to others, especially to the, to the lost in our community and in the world who, they don't know you. And we are called, we're given a commissioning to go and tell. And yes, this is some deep theology that perhaps we don't bring to the street as we talk to people about Jesus. But may we go and, and reach out uh, to those so that your name might be glorified. And as we take this offering, that's same, that is my prayer the same, that you be glorified in this, that we would use these resources for the furtherment of your kingdom so that your name might be known and that your power might be known as it states in Romans 9 and that your love and your grace and your mercy as well would be known in this area, in Harrisburg, in Central PA, and across the globe. We ask all this 
the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.